This is episode 30 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're finishing Men's Roundup 2007, Let the Story Guide You. This is session four with Don Miller. Morning. Morning. This has been uh, more fun than I expected. <laughs> Justin Timberlake. I jiggle, but not in the same way that Warren, <laughs> Warren jiggles. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, <clears throat> I'm proud to say I didn't know the lyrics to that song. <laughs> or recognize it. Uh, but, um, yeah, this has really been a great time, and, and uh, I appreciate the, the friendship and brotherhood that you guys have created, and echo the sentiments to invite younger men in to this community and begin mentoring those guys. And when, we ask, uh, when we ask the question, how can the story guide us, or let the story guide us, what is the story? Well, if you think about story, the concept of story, it's, um, it's uh, a mystery to many people as to why it exists. I mean, story form is, um, is not unlike musical form in the sense that um, you know you can take the sound of uh, a jackhammer and and street noise and you know these sorts of things and it's just noise um, it but then if you take that same noise or the principle of noise or the mystery of noise and you tune it and you uh, give it to some principles it becomes music and music makes sense to us while noise doesn't. And um, it's sort of the same with life experiences. I mean, if, if we don't have an ambition, if we don't understand that conflict is going to happen, if there's not a climax that we're heading for, if there's not a final scene that we want to take place, if there aren't memorable scenes inside the form of the story we're living, we're just living inside of noise. And the experiences are actually happening, but they're probably not going to make a whole lot of sense. But where did, the, where did story come from? Is it an invention of God? Is he giving it to us in order to, that we have a tool with which to make sense of life? I don't know the answer to that question. But I'm, I'm leaning toward no. I'm leaning toward the idea that story, you know, might be a consequence of, of, of events that have taken place in human history. Um... There aren't a lot of Darwinian mechanisms to explain story. The, the best explanation I've heard is actually, actually comes from a Christian worldview. And that's simply this. Um, exposition, settings, and character exist because God creates the world. Before the world, there was possibly nothing. Because uh, in, in, a, in a physical sense, it's questionable whether God exists materially. Matter um, is, is, the, uh, is the creation out of the nothingness that he is. Am I making no sense to you? <laughs> because matter is finite, and God is infinite. And so he creates this existence 
that we live within. So that's the framework with which we understand reality. So it's very difficult for us to understand that God is and yet isn't the way light is and yet isn't. Um, but he creates this, and so we understand setting earth because uh, we exist within a setting. And we understand characters or the idea of a protagonist or a multi-protagonist story because uh, we are characters. Um, for instance, you know, if you close your eyes for a second, you try to imagine a story that has no setting. It's, it's pretty tough. You're kind of going, okay, well, you know, a black hole. No, a black hole's a setting. Okay, well, uh, you know, nothingness. Okay, well, I can't get that in my mind exactly. Characters exist in story because we are characters. Conflict exists in story because there was conflict. And... Uh, uh, resolution exists in story because the conflict is heading towards something that hopefully will make it better. At least we have the hope that it's going to make it better. Um, a climax exists in a story. By the way, a, a climax is uh, a point in the story that determines, usually the protagonist makes a decision that determines whether the story is going to turn out to be a comedy or a tragedy. That's what a climax actually is in a story. So the crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, our faith in him turns out to be a kind of climax to our story. So we see that the elements of story actually come out of the events of human history. And it's a wonderful Christian apologetic because we don't have any other explanation for why story exists in the way that it does. Most faith systems and most philosophical systems jump into the middle of the story, but they don't explain where the story came from. In other words, they're trying to help you get resolution but they won't explain where the conflict came from in the first place. And Christianity is different in that sense. Um, but there are other stories. There are other elements of stories that are being told to us all the time. Uh, and they're framing the principles of story differently. So, you know, Richard Dawkins is saying... Well, conflict comes because of a selfish gene. It's really a Darwinian mechanism. It's survival. That changes the, the nature of story, doesn't it? The biggest one is climax. We talked about it last night. You will be uh, okay if you, um, you know, have this material possession or if you have this boat or if you have this truck or if you just look this way or if you sleep with these girls. Or... That's, that's a big one where, where the evil one, I think, is trying to plug something else in besides Christ. And it's tricky. I mean, you know, this is what we battle with. Um, if you look at the history of the church, I'm just going to go through about a, a couple thousand years here. You can see that, real quick, you can see the culture around us shaping the elements of the story for the church very dramatically. Um, I was, in, uh, I was at, on a Greek Orthodox pilgrimage last year. And... Uh, studying under a guy named Bishop Kalistos, who's been a professor at Oxford for about 30 years. And we essentially went to ancient cathedrals, Anglo-Saxon cathedrals um, in northern England and Scotland, and we would do Greek Orthodox liturgy there. Now, I'm not Greek Orthodox. I've never been to a Greek Orthodox liturgy. You've got to stand a lot, <clears throat> and they burn incense. So it was different, because I grew up Southern Baptist, and we would sit and hear a lecture, you know, and we wouldn't burn incense. <laughs> but in ways it was really, 
you know, it was really, it was good. It was a great history lesson. Well, we spent uh, a few days at a place called Durham, England, uh, and we, we sort of studied uh, the history of Durham Cathedral and St. Cuthbert, who's buried in Durham Cathedral, and Bede, the Anglo-Saxon historian, who's also buried in Durham Cathedral. And uh, it was just a fascinating time. But uh, on the last day that we were there in Durham, I wanted to get a picture from the river of the cathedral. So I was waiting for evening light, because evening light kind of hits the, the walls of the cathedral, and it came about time, so I ran down to the river, and I'm taking this picture, and I noticed something that was, that was interesting. I hadn't noticed before. Um, that Durham Cathedral is, um, the first thing that you notice that I had noticed, that everybody notices, is that Durham Cathedral is shaped like a cross. So the whole building, the whole structure, the architecture of the building is a giant cross, and it's an enormous cross. I mean, it's an enormous, enormous building. It took 150 years for the community to build this cathedral. And uh, I knew that, but then I go down to the river, I'm taking this picture, and the towers on the cathedral itself uh, look like the towers of the castle that sits across the parking lot, or what was then, you know, a meadow. And I thought, that's interesting, that those two buildings look alike. Now, this is before, like, master plan communities, and you couldn't have little gnomes in your window. You know, this is back in the day, right? <laughs> so this is actually saying something. <laughs> this is actually saying something about the culture at that time. And I said to myself, that castle was built first, guaranteed, and the cathedral was built second. So go back and research it, and sure enough, the castle was actually built about 150 years before they broke down on the cathedral. And the castle was built to uh, protect um, the bishop of Durham from the invasion of the Normans, which were a bunch of guys from uh, Arkansas named Norman who came down, <laughs> tried to take over England. Don't read about it, trust me. <laughs> um, and the bishop was the church before the printing press had been hijacked by the government so the government was saying how do we get people to pay taxes how do we get people to obey us how do we and the way they did it they said oh we'll take over the church so we'll just you know the bishops will be appointed by the queen or the king and then uh, we'll just say that God said to do whatever we want them to do right so these ancient cathedrals uh, were built by heretics. When you go to England and you think, boy, 150 years to build this thing, you know how they did it? They would go into a community and the bishop would say, um, give us 20 bucks to buy a brick and that will get your uncle out of hell. So this is how those ancient cathedrals, so next time you're in England and you're worshiping the ancient cathedrals, just I hate to bust your balloon, but there are more godly churches that meet in bowling alleys, right? Then, and some of you do. Some of you will go back home and have a new pride for your building. Um, but you go to an Anglican service. Uh, by the way, probably my favorite theologian, or at least one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright. Um, anybody read N.T. Wright's stuff? N.T. Wright is the bishop of Durham. And he is, you know, some people say he's the, the next C.S. Lewis kind of thing. And he's certainly a very brilliant theologian. Um, but, but still today, N.T. Wright is appointed by the queen. So the lead religious figure in the community is appointed by the queen. Now really what's happening is the church is appointing him and then the queen comes in and says, kind of like the prime minister, yes, you know, I bless you, whatever. But this is from back in the day. And so we went to N.T. Wright's house. I wanted to talk to N.T. Wright. So we found out where he lived. And he went to his house. 
and he lives in a castle. He lives in a castle about maybe 40 miles from Durham Cathedral. And um, we knocked on his door a bunch, but he wouldn't answer the door. His car was out there. <laughs> but I guess people go see and ride all the time. Um, and after three days, we figured, you know, he's got to come out. He can't have that much food in that house. <laughs> I felt like the Normans. <laughs> um, anyway, so you see, this, you see the relationship between the culture of that time and the church. Now put yourself in Durham as a peasant, you know, uh, pre-printing press, and uh, you're looking up at this castle. Now this is before the church was built. Who would be like the dominant um, cultural icon, cultural figure in your society? It would be them. I mean, here you are, you know, you're, you're plowing your fields with an ox, and here's these guys, they live in this amazing castle, and boy, life would be great if only, right? That would be really great if those guys have it made. And so the church, understanding the language of the culture, perhaps subconsciously, builds their building with a foot and two kingdoms. They build it in the shape of a cross. Why'd they build it in the shape of a cross? Again, pre-printing press. They're teaching theology to the illiterate. So they actually teach theology through the architecture of their building. There's a great book called uh, The Geometry of Love that talks about a thick textbook that talks about every facet of why these buildings are built the way they are. Because they're teaching uh, illiterate people about God. So one foot in the kingdom of God, but another foot in the kingdom of the world. Uh, we also want to be associated with whatever it is in culture or society that is the dominant influence because we, can, we are like them too. Now, that's just an interesting thing and, and perhaps we can dismiss it, but let's just fast forward. Let's fast forward to probably uh, one of the next major cultural shifts, which would be the Enlightenment. So the invention of the printing press ushered in a lot of scientific study, the explosion of knowledge. We've had another one with the invention of the internet, an explosion of knowledge. But imagine people learning to read. Uh, people, it was very, very controversial getting a hold of the, of the Bible. Martin Luther uh, gets a hold of a printed version of the Bible, and he can't find the part about the bricks, getting your uncle out of hell. Right? So he reforms, and he, he, uh, he starts the Reformation and uh, then the Bible gets in people's hands and people give them to know the truth and the universal church at the time has to back off a little bit. But, um, you know, this ushers in the Enlightenment. What happens at the Enlightenment? Well, it's the beginning of sort of, um, not the beginning, it, it's the popularization of rational thought. So it's a terrific thing that happens. We stop sawing each other's limbs off to bleed out the common flu, right? So there's some good things that happen in the Enlightenment. Um, but the nature of truth begins to change at the Enlightenment. Truth is no longer poetic or mythological. Truth is rational, scientific, contextual. And um, the church reacts to this because it's feeling insecure about its Adam and Eve eating the apple and the lack of bullet points kind of in scripture. And so it begins to use language like absolute truth and inerrancy and these sorts of things to defend itself against the onslaught of the Enlightenment. Now this was a good thing. However, it failed to understand that truth can be bigger 
than rational thought. For example, um, my friend uh, Tony and I were having uh, coffee in Portland, large pints of cold coffee in Portland. You never know. Sin is regional. You don't know where you're going to hit, you know, hits, walk on some landmines. But we're talking, and I asked Tony, I say, Tony, you know, why do you love your wife? And Tony says, you know, he lists some things. He says, um, well, you know, she's intelligent, and uh, she stimulates me intellectually. She's, uh, I think she's beautiful. And uh, he says, uh, she's, she's, you know, faithful. She subscribes to you know, metaphysical answers to, to life's questions. So I just stop him. He gave me three reasons, right? So I said, okay, I know there's more reasons why you love your wife. Well, let me just stop you there. I said, Tony, if, if I could introduce you to a woman who was more intelligent than your wife, um, we actually sat them down and tested them. And this woman was like NASA physicist smart, right? And then, and then she happened to also be you know, crime of all crimes, more beautiful than your wife. You would actually say, okay, well, that woman is actually more beautiful than my wife. She works at NASA. She walks around NASA in a bikini with a little pocket protector. <laughs> right? <laughs> and, uh, and she is a better Christian than your wife. She has a Bible study at NASA in her bikini with a pocket protector. All the little interns, engineer guys love to show up. They're reconsidering faith. Powerful ministry there. <laughs> Would you then transfer your love for your wife to this other woman, to, let's call her Bertha? Would you transfer your love for your wife to Bertha? And Tony said, of course not. And uh, I said, why? You told me that the reasons that you love your wife, and you listed three. So those can't be the reasons. It has to be something else. And Tony said, well, it's not exactly a scientific process. Ooh, wait a second. But it can't be true then. You can't prove that you love your wife. Therefore, you don't. Not only that, love doesn't exist. It can't because you can't prove it. Because every time I'm asking you to prove it, you're just bringing me experience. And experience doesn't prove anything. Experience is subjective. So love doesn't exist. Neither does beauty, by the way. I mean, if you know, John McMurray and I have gone on some hikes and taken photos with him. We've seen some amazing things. And um, if, I were to, if, if John were to make a comment, Don, isn't this sunrise beautiful? Sunrise is rarely beautiful for me because it's just way, it's too early. <laughs> Sunset's great. <laughs> amen, amen. Um, but then I would, and, you know, I would say, okay, well, that's interesting that you say that. And then I were to go over and find a, like a large pile of camel dung, right? And I were to say, what do you think of this? John would say, not as beautiful, won't sell calendars, right? <laughs> I mean, it might, certain cultures. I have no idea. Not beautiful. And then I were to say, John, defend that position. Why? Why is the, why is the sunrise beautiful but the pile of camel dung is not beautiful. It's all the same. It's, uh, it's molecular composition. It's dirt. It's moisture, steam coming off of it. Uh, it's light. 
and the way the light plays with the camel dung <laughs> versus the way it's the same exact thing there's nothing different about it it's just that with the with the sun it's shaped a little dip you can't defend beauty so you, do you see what I'm saying we're all walking around subscribing to ideas that are indefensible through rational thought now the Enlightenment came along and said but truth can only be arrived at through rational thought. But what if there is greater truth? What if there is truth that exists beyond our finite capacity and beyond our finite minds? You know, Chesterton in Orthodoxy said it this way. He said, um, the mathematician goes crazy, not the poet. And you know why? Because the mathematician tries to build a bridge across the infinite, and the poet just swims around in the sea. The, I mean, the rational thinker is going to go, Man, I, you know, I got to figure this out. And if I can't figure it out, therefore it's not true. And the poet goes, you're never going to figure it out. It's bigger than you. So Jesus is saying things like, I am the good shepherd. The sheep will know my voice. Well, now this is, this is fascinating to me. Um, what is the explanation that we have for love? And how do you explain it? You know, you walked into a room, you saw your wife, you felt these feelings you knew she was quote the one you know how do you explain that stuff you know the best imagery i've ever heard for explaining that dynamic is um a little a little fat angel naked in a tree with a bow and arrow like picking guys off at bible college right just <laughs> <laughs> that makes complete sense i mean you look at the social landscape and you go yeah that might that might be true <laughs> Because there ain't a whole lot else explaining this thing. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the sheep will know my voice. You know what the closest metaphor I can understand to what he's saying? A little guy in a tree shooting arrows. I am the good shepherd. The sheep will know my voice. Not, here's four points. If you agree with them, you are a follower of Christ. He never says it. I'm the good shepherd, the sheep will know my voice. The kingdom of God is like a guy who found a field with a treasure buried in it and sold everything he had to buy the field. The kingdom of God is like a woman who, who lost a coin in a couch and she's ripping up the couch trying to find the coin. The, it's all this poetic kind of stuff. Well, what happens to our churches when uh, the Enlightenment takes place? Well, the dominant influence in culture is no longer government, right? The Enlightenment sort of ends that because they can't manipulate us anymore. And it becomes um, academia. It becomes uh, rational and scientific truth. And so the dominant influence in culture is now the university and the university system. What happens to our churches? Well, um, the sermon in an Anglican church is about five minutes long. I mean, the rest of it is liturgy. It's the reading of scripture. It's imagery. The robes that they're wearing are to remind us of royalty and the kingship of God. The gospel is brought into the center of the congregation, lit by two candles, saying, this is the light of the world. When the gospel is brought into the center of the congregation, everybody stands and turns to follow the gospel. And this part of the service is designed to say, it is only the gospel that will allow us to face each other in honesty. And then the gospel is read. It's all imagery to teach the illiterate, right? Post-enlightenment, the church changes and adapts to the culture. The pulpit comes from the side to the center. The pews are set up like uh, classroom style. Uh, the sermon goes to 45 minutes and usually focuses on truth or absolute truth. Do you see it? 
It's a schoolroom. And the pastor goes from a sort of kingly figure to a teacher figure. Well, the elements of story have changed. Now it's rational thought that will save us, or at least lead to our salvation. And the church adapts. Let's fast forward. You know, right in there at the same time, it's hard to know which happened first, but probably the next big cultural shift is um, the Industrial Revolution. Now, the Industrial Revolution affected you guys in ways that you might not have considered. It, the Industrial Revolution is the most dramatic effect on masculinity, had the most dramatic effect on masculinity more than anything else in the history of mankind. And um, what happened was, pre-Industrial Revolution, men were uh, working in and around their homes. So even if you were in an urban environment, you would run a shop, you know, your house would be above your shop, and you would run your printing press or whatever. Your wife and children would actually help run this. Uh, men would, uh, after they passed away, their wives would know the business so well that they could continue the business. They worked really well together. Almost no divorce rate going on at all. Um, all of the early church manuals on raising children, changing diapers, were written to men, not to women, because the man ran the home. He was the one who ran everything, and he had his hands in everything. So the Industrial Revolution comes along, brought on by free market dynamics, which was really a pure, the Puritans were using free market dynamics in order, as the community grew, they wanted to share. So they said, how can we live in a community? And they said, well, you know, what if we all stopped growing vegetables and I only grew tomatoes and you only grew potatoes and you only harvested beef and then we shared each other's uh, stuff and we could get along as a Christian community it would actually help our faith, the birth of a free market economy, or at least the, the first application of free market dynamics it took place in America. So culture at large kind of got used to this. They said, well, we like this idea. You know, it helps us focus. And this created... Uh, once the invention of, uh, you know, the steam engine and all this stuff, the Industrial Revolution takes place. Now, this is the first time in history where men are pulled from their homes. So you're no longer working the fields around your house or the printing press with your wife and kids. You're pulled from your home to work 10 or 12 hours a day screwing a bumper on a truck or in a coal mine. And you're no longer a dominant influence in your home whether you like it or not. This is the beginning of the decline of the American family, was the Industrial Revolution. It all falls apart then and continues to decline today, worse and worse. And, you know, as a critical thinker, I gotta I got say, it frustrates me when Christian leaders blame the decline of the American family on hip-hop music and three Supreme Court justices, right? I kinda go, are you, are you serious? This happened this is so entrenched in the DNA of our culture, um, it will never be repaired. So men leave their home, the American family begins to decline. But the dominant influence in culture is no longer uh, the university. The dominant influence in culture becomes what? Becomes the corporation. Becomes big business. And America takes on this... this uh, Identity so much so that our country is actually run like a business more than it is like anything else um, What happens to our churches? 
Our churches become conference centers to help you be more productive. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the phrase, uh, blah, 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 be profitable for the kingdom of God. Just raise your hand. Be profitable for the kingdom of God. Where does that come from? Let me ask you this. Is it biblical? It's debatable. It might be. Um, but it doesn't come from the Bible. Because there's, there's way too much other stuff to counter that. Um, it comes from corporations. But now this has a dramatic effect on the way we see faith. Because the elements of story that are being pitched to us are now changing. Um, you are supposed to be, here's what you're supposed to do with your conflict. You're supposed to be productive and you're supposed to be profitable. And so um, churches now look like conference centers where product, you're taught to be productive in your faith. Um, Emerson was the first self-help speaker. Um, he would go around and corporations hired him because the morale of their men was so incredibly low. I mean, here they're, they're raising their kids, right? And their, their, their whole identity as men is tied to the success of that kid and the happiness of that woman. And when that kid is successful, learns to work, and has a good ethic, I feel like a better man. And when she's happy and pleased and protected and secure, I feel like a better man. Now I'm spending 12 hours a day screwing a bumper on a truck. And I'm supposed to screw the bumper on the truck, step away, and go, wow, look what a great man I am. Doesn't have the same effect. So morale plummets amongst men. Emerson is hired by corporations. He goes around the country and he fills large auditoriums. And he basically says, no, no, no. You're not a part of a corporation. That's not what you're part of. You're a part of a team. Are you ready? You're a part of a family. And so he actually begins to identify the corporate structure with a family structure in order to boost morale. And so our loyalties begin to change from our homes to success and careers. Um, and the church follows suit. So we hear things like, um, you know, we hear things like, um, be profitable for the kingdom of God, um, the five keys to a, a biblical marriage, you know, a productive marriage, an efficient marriage. We begin to structure our faith through day planners and these kinds of things. It's all very, very influenced by large-scale corporations. Then we move into um, the commercial revolution. Essentially what happened was in the Industrial Revolution, America became, uh, you know, probably post-World War II, the most powerful economic figure in the world. And basically, Americans had everything they needed. They didn't need anything else. Um, we were not a country in poverty. And so, how do you keep a free market economy going when nobody really needs to buy anything anymore? Well, this is the birth of advertising. And what advertising did, and you can read this in a book called Jihad versus McWorld, or a book called Consumed, what advertising did was it created what, what is called in, uh, in the advertising community, pseudo-needs. In other words, they're not actual needs, but we have to convince you that you need them so that you will continue to stimulate the economy. And so, you know, I think um, $50 billion 20 years ago was spent advertising to children, and now it's uh, $250 billion. I mean, trying to get earlier and earlier for you to... And I just read an article in the New York Times, which was fascinating, that said, you know, 
um, at the next venture for advertisers is not to try to convince you to buy a product, it's to try to um, gain or convince you to be loyal to a brand. And so the brands are being pitched the same way religion is being pitched. So that by buying the Apple iPod, which I own, the Apple iPod, um, you, are making, you are having a conversion experience, is what they're now calling the buying of a product. I mean, it's just, you know, it's fascinating stuff to me. So what happens in the Christian community? The elements of our story begin to change as well. Now it's a commercial formula. Um, you are unhappy unless you buy this product, okay? Your marriage is in crisis. Here are three steps to fix your marriage, and they're biblical steps. If you, if you invest in these steps to do these things, your marriage is going to be fine. That is the influence of commercialism. Now, I'm going to tell you something. It's not biblical. It's not. And, and you know, we're going to unpack this in a second. So what is the... What are the true elements of story? What, are the, what is the true uh, thing that is happening in society that we can govern our lives or use as a mental compass? Well, let's just look at the icons that Jesus uses when he talks about what spirituality is actually like. He uses um, almost exclusively, in fact, I can't think of one where he doesn't, um, natural icons. So he is using to explain what reality is like or spirituality is like, he's using farming metaphors, right? He's using ranching metaphors. He's using relational metaphors. And all of that stuff works very, very differently than commercial messages. For instance, if God is saying, Don, um, a tree planted by a river, firmly planted by a river, will grow and produce fruit. That's different than if I give you 20 bucks, my problems will be solved, right? Namely, it's different because it's a heck of a lot slower. I actually did an experiment. I took a lawn chair into the woods, and I took a picture of the forest, and three hours later, I took another picture of the forest. It was almost exactly the same. <laughs> That's how slow trees grow. They don't grow quick. Now, in a commercial age, we're convinced that our problems are going to be fixed right away, and God never promised that. Right? I mean, essentially, God comes to you and says, Wow, man, you had abuse in your past, and so you got these huge boulders that are in your field. Um, we can get rid of some of them. It's going to take a very long time. That boulder ain't going nowhere. It's enormous. But we'll plan around it, and you'll, have, you'll be able to produce all sorts of crop to feed your family. And here's a great thing. If you, if you produce this crop to feed your family, your children won't have any boulders in their field. That's reality, right? And then Jesus is saying, you're, but you're going, Jesus, I just want you to fix me, like make it better and take this away. And he's going, no. I've given a system with which to fix you, and this is the system. And this is how it's going to work. But listen, we'll do it together. We're going to be in it for the long haul. What's another metaphor that he uses? Well, you know, we look at ranching metaphors like sheep to shepherd. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't a metaphor that, that we understand very much anymore, although there are probably a few shepherds in here. Um, but at the, in the day, you know, they would have understood this. Um, this idea that, that uh, you know, when, when David says, um, 
your rod and your staff, you, they comfort me. You know, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The valley of the shadow of death was an actual valley that came out of Jerusalem. And it was a very narrow valley. And they would have to take sheep through this valley out of Jerusalem to get them to the greener pastures on the other side of the valley. But it was extremely dangerous, but they had to do it. And so David is actually saying, life is like the valley of the shadow of death. It's really dangerous. It's going to be extremely hard to get through. But God has a rod, and the rod he uses to protect me against animals. And he has a staff with a little hook on the end, so that when I fall into a crack, he can take that hook and put it around my neck and pull me up. This is very different than the commercial ideas that we pick up in our society. Um, he uses um, father imagery. And if you think about, you know, God being like a father, it's very different than the commercial messages. Just look at Matthew 6 real quick. Jesus is talking in Matthew 6, and he's talking to two groups of people that we're pretty familiar with. One is the Pharisees, and uh, Pharisees are guys who basically subscribe to the law, but they would get their validation from obeying the law, right? They weren't even getting it from God. They were just getting it, I matter because I obey these rules. And they liked it so much that they would actually add rules that God didn't even give them. And then they would obey those rules so that they could look down on people who weren't obeying those rules. Now, um, there are examples of Pharisees in our culture, but they're not many. And I wouldn't say that Pharisees are a big, you know, problem in evangelical culture in America. Um, I run into them every once in a while, but, uh, but they're not that big of a deal, at least in our culture. The other group of people that Jesus is talking to is exactly like our culture. Now, he uses a broad brush, and they're just called the Gentiles. Or, but what, he's, what these people are doing is they're rambling on before God. They're treating God like a genie in a lamp. And if they just ramble on and use magic formulas, then they'll get what they want from God. So their spirituality looks a lot more like voodoo than it does like anything else. And so Jesus explains this, and then he says, I don't want you to see spirituality like this anymore. Instead, I want you to see it differently. I want you to see it this way. And so he says this in verse 5. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. And he's talking about the Pharisees. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. In other words, their false validation is all they're going to get. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room in secret, in private, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Now, this means something. This means that when I'm on the road in a hotel room by myself and nobody's there, that's who I am. That's my faith. It's not standing here and talking to you guys. Uh, my faith exists in private. And... That's the real measure of where I am and where my walk is with Christ. Then your father, now this is new. He, you know, God has been called father before, certainly. But he's shifting a paradigm. He said, don't do this, right? Do this. See God this way. Your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. These are the voodoo guys. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. 
For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, well, the, the fathering idea um, is completely different than the commercial idea. You know, I grew up without a dad, and, and John and I wrote a book about it called To Own a Dragon. And the story of the, how that book came to be, I share with you when I introduced John. Uh, I was at a college Bible study for a couple of years, and, well, one night I showed up and I was kind of hungry, so I asked John's very loving and kind wife, do you have anything for me to eat? She said, Don, you know, make yourself home, go into the fridge. So I'm standing there with the fridge open, you know, and John comes through the, the swinging doors and sees me, and, he's, and he just says, you got to know John, you know, he just says, well, make yourself at home, you know? And I thought, well, Terry said I could have a sandwich. And uh, he said, seriously, if you want to move in, move in. we got an apartment above the garage. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, you're driving 45 minutes to get here. And I'm like, that's interesting. And John like, goes in the junk drawer and pulls out a key. And he says, like, there's the key. Let us know when you're going to move in. And, I'm, and that was it. That was the conversation that we had. <laughs> People from Philadelphia, man. <laughs> they, just get, they get the job done. Uh, and so this is my, but this is my first introduction, you know, I was 20-something at the time, to a family with a father in it. And I got to tell you, the first year was really strange. Because here's, in what my mind, here's, what a, here's a completely normal family, meaning Terry and the kids, and then here's this guy who walks around in his underwear all the time. <laughs> Which was, I kept waiting, you know, I was like, the washing machine is fixed. Why are you still here? <laughs> um, but it was just an awesome experience. But I learned a lot about how a father works. And a father works, like I said, differently than the magic bullet or the pill that we take to make everything better. Um, John has three kids. Chris is the oldest. He was, uh, he was uh, an infant when I moved in. He's 13 now. Um, and then there's Ellie, who we called Elbow. And then there's Cassie, who we sometimes call Casserole. And these, these kids were born after I got there. And, um, but it was just neat to see them grow up. And Cassie was always, and, and, you know, was always sort of the most dramatic. And, the, you know, uh, she's the one to give you a big hug, you know, when you walk into the room. And um, um, John is, you know, I hope it's okay to share this, John, but, you know, Ellie is very sensitive. And they're both, they're both beautiful girls. And John said, you know, if a guy ever breaks Ellie's heart, I'm just going to sit Cassie on him. The <laughs> um, so, you know, but one night we're eating, and I, and I can't remember what we were having, but um, they would invite me down for dinner, and I'd go down sometimes, and, and we were eating, and um, I think we are having mac and cheese or something, you know, and Cassie decides that she wants chicken nuggets. So she lets it be known that she wants chicken nuggets. And, you know, we're all kind of sitting there, and end of a long day, right? And, uh, and John says, Cash, you know, we're not having chicken nuggets. We're going to have mac and cheese, and maybe we'll have chicken nuggets tomorrow. You know, we'll talk about it. And Cassie, late two going on three, is adamant. No, I, I want chicken nuggets. So she actually falls out of her chair onto the kitchen floor and begins rolling around, uh, screaming, I want chicken nuggets, you know? And so... So we're all kind of going, oh, we didn't know. We didn't realize how bad she wanted. <laughs> so John, as a father, has some options here, right? Um, but let's look at, you know, here's, here's, a, here's Cassie. Her, you know, she's two going on three. Let's just look at her, what's going on in her brain for a second. Because she's crying and... It's a hard time, and even though we're kind of trying not to let her see us giggle, right? 
I think she actually said something like, Dad, how could you do this to me about the, the chicken nuggets? <laughs> so we're, you know, we're seeing this, and, but she's too good. What is she learning? She's learning that uh, the ultimate example for authority in her life, uh, the ultimate example of love in her life um, is not giving her what she wants. That's, a, that's tough. Because all sorts of questions come out of it. Do you love me? You know, I thought there was love in this world. I thought there was security in this world. And there's not. Wow. That's tough. And um, not only that, she's learning that the ultimate example of authority and love is okay with her experiencing pain. That's tough. Not only that, but if she doesn't get up, she's going to get more pain. <laughs> and that's another tough lesson. Uh, so what I did was I got up and I called uh, Child Protection Services to bring over some Happy Meals, because this was obviously an injustice or an abuse. No, why would, why would John not give Cassie the chicken nuggets? Father knows better. Well, because he loves her. Because he loves her. And he knows better than she does what she needs. Now I'm telling you, if we think that God is a magic pill that's going to fix our trouble, and the whole time he's actually a father who's perfectly fine with us feeling pain, we're going to have a rough life. And, and let me tell you, you're going to walk away from God. Because you thought he was going to do this thing, and he was never going to do it. And he just says, absolutely not. Why? Why wouldn't he just give you the chicken nuggets? I'll tell you why. Um, Joy lives in a, in a neighborhood in Portland called The Pearl. They basically tore down the whole industrial district for like 20 square blocks and built all these new buildings. It's like an Ikea exploded. <laughs> it's like a, uh, it's a refugee camp for Californians. You know, having been in Portland for 15 years, I got to tell you, the pearl is the goofiest thing I've ever seen. But, you know, hey, but Joy's great. Joy loves it, and there's some great restaurants, and, you know, it's a good time to go down and, and um, feel like a man. So, but, you know, our home community met down there, and I really like these people. And so I started going to home community. We actually met at Joy's house. And occasionally, when I was trying to park my car, I would see... Um, a Jeep down there parked, and the Jeep was bright pink. I mean, the whole Jeep had been painted bright pink, and the words Barbie were painted in calligraphy across the side of the Jeep. And I thought, who, who is that? I have to see this person, man or woman, who's driving around in this Jeep. <laughs> so one day I'm going to home community, and I, and I see the Jeep, and it's driving. And I'm thinking, this is it. So I follow it for like 10 minutes going, I just got to see this, you know. And she pulls over and she gets out of the Jeep. Turns out to be a girl. And she's just like dolled up, man. She's just plastic from head to toe. Perfect. And um, the, I'm not kidding. The first thing that I thought was, they gave her the nuggets. <laughs> right? 
So this is what happens to your children if you, if you give in. But John has some options here. John can, um, he can say, Cass, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize how passionately you wanted nuggets. Let me, um, let me turn the oven on. We'll get some, it's going to take about 15 minutes, you know, but, um, but these children become, you know, third world dictators. We don't like these people. <laughs> or they come Barbie. Um, John can, as a father, as a good father, John can lay down on the floor with Cassie and roll around with her and say, I can't believe this is happening to all of us. Life is like this. Life is awful. and <laughs> Things have taken a negative turn. Now, I actually told this story real quick. I told this story at a university in Pennsylvania, and there was a, a psychology professor who I had lunch with after the lecture, and um, he, he said, he kind of leaned over, he said, I got to tell you a story. I said, okay. He said, you know, my daughter's 20 years old. She's great. She's, she's doing great. Um, but you know how you talked about, like, laying, like, maybe John would, like, lay down on the floor? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, you know, when she was, she was about three, um, I read an article in some textbook or read, you know, something that basically said that psychologically, if the parent will reduce themselves to the level of the child, the child will automatically take on the role of the parent and try to bring maturity to the situation. Um, which he said, I don't recommend this as a parenting technique, but as a young psychology student, I was really curious. <laughs> so he said, uh, he said, I was in a mall, a crowded mall. <laughs> he said, my daughter is three years old. She wants to go into this store to look at like stuffed animals. And I say, we can't, we got to go home. Mom is expecting us home. So she throws a fit. She lays down on the floor and she starts screaming and pounding her fists against the, you know, marble floor of the mall. And at first, he said, at first, I was really frustrated. And then I thought, oh, yeah, 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 that thing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. So in a crowded mall, he lays down on the floor with his daughter and starts rolling around until a crowd gathers around, <laughs> gathers around the two of them. And his daughter actually stops and is just looking at her dad like, what is going on? And her daughter stands up and grabs her dad's hand and says, no, daddy, no, get up, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he said her daughter never threw a fit again and she's like this perfectly healthy 20 year old <laughs> so maybe that's what you should have done John but John doesn't right he says, he says Cass you're not getting chicken nuggets <laughs> there is nothing that you can possibly do right now to get chicken nuggets you're going to get up you're going to come to the table you're going to eat with your family and today, Cassie is a very mature young woman, beautiful young woman, not the least bit spoiled, not going to drive around in a pink Jeep, I don't think. <laughs> uh, and why? Because she was fathered to maturity. That's why. And this is what God is doing in us. There are multiple stories taking place in our lives. Um, this one's easy for the guys to understand because we understand the need for a father and you understand the validation for a father you know my dad left when I was a kid 30 years later John and I write to own a dragon and I began thinking about him I had assumed I think he was dead uh, none of us had ever heard from him and I'm thinking about him, and I just feel like this story isn't over. I mean, I, the book is out. 
but the story isn't over. I got to figure this thing out. So I get some information from my mom, and I have a friend who works for the district attorney in Seattle, and he runs through his database and tries to find my dad. And he finds a guy in Texas, which is where I grew up, who passed away in 1990, who has the same name and birthday as my dad. And he was in the same community where I grew up. And I thought, man, he was there all that time, you know. But, I'm, but it's so amazing. Here, here's a guy I never met and never knew. And I'm, I had to pull over on the side of the road. And I wasn't crying, but I just felt so much grief, as though somebody I had known had died. And I think what it was was this sort of revelation of, um, you know, to me of there's the wound. There's like the wound that your dad left and you're grieving because it will never be healed. So, you know, it was a rough week that week. Two weeks later, my mom calls. She says, Don, I found some more information about your dad. And I said, oh, you know, how am I going to tell her? You know, and she said, he's alive. He lives in Indiana. And I called him and I talked to him on the phone. We had the wrong guy. And I'm thinking, oh, you're kidding me, right? And it took about six months for me to get up the nerve to call him. Because I couldn't figure out what I was feeling. I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it, but I knew I had to do it. And uh, I was in Chicago, and I told myself, I'm going to be in Chicago. I got tickets to the Seahawks-Bears game at Soldier Field, right? The morning before, I'm driving to Indiana, because Illinois is right near Indiana, and I'm going to see my dad. And I haven't called him yet. And the night before, I'm going, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to chicken out. I would, luckily, I was, I was staying with my friend Dave, who had done the same thing. He had the same journey. He had done the same thing. And he was, he was good enough to be quiet, to just listen and go, that's your journey, but it really helped me, you know. And so I sent out a mass email to a bunch of my friends. John, did you get that email? It just said, tomorrow I'm going to go see my dad. Because I knew I have the kind of friends who would be, <laughs> if I didn't do it, they would just call me a chicken, you know. And so now I got this. That's it, it, by the way, in story, that's called the inciting incident. You can't turn back. You know, it's the thing that you do. You said, I can't, I got to do this. I can't turn back. And, uh, and so I made the inciting incident happen. Now I got to go do it. Well, I didn't realize that Indiana is a very big state, and it was going to take seven hours for me to drive to see my dad. Um, and so I called him, and I left a message on his voicemail. I said, hi, this is your son, Don. Um, I know you know... I exist, mom called you six months ago, but I'm in your area, and I'm, I have your address, I'm driving to your house. I don't even know if you're there. If you get this and you're not there, would you call me? Because <laughs> it's a long drive. Man, I'll tell you, I felt, I had friends texting me long passages of scripture. Uh, I had friends calling me just to say, man, let's pray. You know, there were at least five times where I, where I wanted to pull over and just throw up. And I couldn't figure out what I was feeling. But it was, it was, you know, looking back, it was all fear of whether my dad would validate me. That's the reason I never, I never went looking for him. He was a basketball coach. He was an amazing athlete. I wasn't. So I knew he wouldn't validate me. I knew he wouldn't like me. And here's this guy. He's not even a good dad, right? 
get to his hometown, pull up in front of his house, get out of the car. He walks out, you know, of a nice house. He's been married for 20 years. He's a good guy. He's scared to death. I'm not going to validate him. You know, it's just amazing. <laughs> Sit down, you know, give him a hug. He's three beers in. He probably had four more while I was sitting there. Never turned off the television. <laughs> and uh, we talked for about two and a half hours. And at one point, he turned to me, he told me the whole story of the divorce, how it happened, why he never called me. He just felt so emasculated by the whole thing. And he just said, what I did was wrong. Will you please forgive me? You know? I said, yeah, I do. And now we keep in touch through a letter. My dad, after 30 years, I've never seen him or talking to him. This is how enormous a father's voice is in our lives. You know, there's, there's a principle and story, and I'll share it with you before we close here. The principle is a character in story is revealed through what they do. A character in story is not revealed by what they feel or what they think or what their intentions are. It is only revealed by what they do. Um, if we don't say to our kids, I affirm you as a man or I affirm you as a young lady, they will not be affirmed. I don't care how much you love them. Your wife, you live in an adventure story, right? I mean, John Eldridge would say, you're as a man, your life is an adventure. But your wife, she lives in a love story. And if we don't say to her, I love you, her love story sucks. I don't care how much you feel it. You know, a character is revealed by what he does. John uh, Cassie would come down. I don't know if she came down that night, but I saw this a number of times. One of the kids would come down. You know, so Cassie comes down at a timeout from her room or wherever and uh, crawls up. You know, John and I would watch Sports Center because Terry goes to bed at like 6.30 in the evening or something and John stays up till midnight. And uh, so we would always watch Sports Center. So here comes Cassie, you know. She comes down out of her room and she crawls up on the couch and she kind of crawls up in John's lap and she puts her arms around John's neck and kind of buries her head in John's neck. What is she doing? What is she saying? Because she doesn't have the language to express what, she's, what she wants to say. But what is she saying? She's saying, John, are we okay? Or Dad, are we okay? Do you love me? I know the whole thing with the chicken nuggets, right? Like, remember that? <laughs> but listen, she means it. She's actually wondering if they're okay. And we look at her and we go, that's cute. You guys, we just do the adult version of that. We say to ourselves, but I'm not profitable for the kingdom. And if you're not profitable for a company, you get fired. How could God love me? Because it's not a company. It's a family. And he's not a CEO. He's a father. And Jesus isn't a product. He's a shepherd. And we switch those metaphors from the culture from the story that our culture is telling us, and we switched them to the metaphors that the Bible is telling us, and life makes sense. And then we design and live our stories out of those metaphors, and we teach the world the polar charges of positive negative, and we set the compass in their minds as to what life is really about. So we are good fathers. 
and we are good husbands because we want the world to understand there's such a thing as love so that they can believe that there is a bridegroom for them. And we want our kids to understand there's such a thing as a father. John said, um, he said um, to me one time, we were out at Lost Lake, I think. We were on the pier. And John said to me, you know, we're taking a shot of Mount Hood. And he said, you know, John, he said, you know, Don, um, my kids are not my kids. And so I said something like, you know, was it the postman? Was it the milkman? Like, who's... <laughs> they look like you, right? John refrained from decking me. <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, my whole job is just to be a living metaphor for who God is. And it's to introduce them to their father. That's my job. It's just to introduce them to the one who made them. And I think that's our job as men. Um, I think the other thing that we have to do is we have to go we have to go back to God and we have to crawl up in his arms and we have to say, are we okay? You know? I know the whole thing with the thing, with the validation thing, with the, are we okay? And then we have to believe every time that he holds us and he says, I mean, John sitting there and he's holding Cass and he's rubbing her back and what does he say to her? He says, Cass, your mom and I talked and we're putting you up for adoption. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's the straw that broke the camel's back. No, he says, Cassie, of course I love you. Of course I love you. I will never, ever stop loving you. And we come to places in Scripture that say, there is nothing that will ever separate you from the love of God. What is God doing? He's got his hand in your back, and he's saying, listen to me. You are not my employee. You are my son. I will never, ever leave you or abandon you. I think we live out of that story, and we tell that story. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come here as men. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for giving us the authority to lead our families and to tell a great story. God, help us not shrink from that authority. Help us not fear that authority. Help us stand in the place in our wives' love stories to say, I love you, and, and create for them a fantastic love story that will echo through the ages. Help us tell great father-son stories. Help us tell great father-daughter stories, as you have done for us. The greatest story ever told, the gospel of Jesus. We praise you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>